Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Bioinformatics Chat. I'm Jacob Schreiber, and I'm joined today by Tyne Lee, uh, also known as Erica. Erica is a third-year grad student working at the University of Wisconsin-Madison with Dr. Susmita Roy. Erica, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here today. Yeah. What is it like being at the University of Wisconsin-Madison? Currently, um, it's uh, I'm not on campus at all, as you can imagine. <laughs> but I really miss it. Uh, Wisconsin, University of Wisconsin-Madison has a really large, kind of decentralized, sprawling campus, and especially during summer. It's lovely because we have a lot of lakes, and um, I like biking to campus when, you know, things are okay or things are better. Um, in fact, I'm probably actually going to go back to campus uh, starting next week. A lot of our people in our building and a lot of pe- most people in our labs have been vaccinated, thankfully. So I'm really, really looking forward to that. Uh, until then, I'm just kind of hanging out at home and trying to get some sunlight when I can. Seems like a good plan. Yeah. <laughs> Technically, I started my postdoc down at Stanford last September, but they're still not even allowing people to meet in person. Oh, wow. And so I've been doing this postdoc for almost a year now, and yet I haven't met most of the people in person that I'm uh, working with. I have a lot of respect for people who had to like switch jobs or start at a new place in the middle of this, but soon, hopefully soon, we will all go back. And I was planning on just running around Target screaming after I got my vaccine. I did not do that, but mm. I, I, yeah, it's kind of getting my cabin fever in the middle of summer, I guess. Yeah. If you want to spend the next few minutes just screaming into your microphone, you know, <laughs> I'm sure most people would understand. <laughs> a nice way to start off a bioinformatics podcast, just screaming. <laughs> like you say, I think that's particularly difficult that a lot of people started grad school mm-hmm. and particularly probably moved to the place oh, yeah. where the university was going to be and then... You know, starting grad school is a particularly difficult experience for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And I think that having to start it in the middle of the pandemic would have just exacerbated issues. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And I know some people who are on different time zones because they just decided to kind of stay at home or whatnot um, to, and then take classes in this time zone, uh, the central. We were just talking about time zones. Um, yeah, I, I have so much respect for those people. And I hope you guys all hang in there. And soon we will all be back and we can eat cakes and donuts together. I'm really looking forward to that. That's the main reason that we hang out with other <laughs> <Yes>. people. <laughs> That's the main reason to go to graduate school, the donuts. So your graduate school experience, Mm -hmm. the primary topic that you've been working with is this idea of chromatin architecture, you know, hard pivot right into the science here. I like like the transition. Let's do it. (laughs) Can you tell us a little bit about the, at a high level, what is chromatin architecture? Absolutely. Um, So this is something that only occurred to me actually also fairly recently, but um, so the DNA the, the chemical string that encodes our, you know, human, human genetic code. The human DNA, um, if you actually stretch it out all linearly, it's about um, two meters, which I think in the American unit, it's like six and a half feet. So it's like a very, very tall person, and that needs to get packed into a cell's nucleus, the center of each, you know, human cell, which on average is about, I believe, six micrometers. And I read somewhere that that's about equivalent to packing a 24-mile-long thread or a string into like a tennis ball. So it's quite a bit of compaction that needs to happen. And in order for that to happen, um, one way of doing it, I imagine, is like just 
balling it up like a hairball that you know your cat or my cat throws up, or um, kind of doing it more in a systematic, organized way, almost like you know you would crochet your DNA into a very specific shape. And turns out the latter is the case.、Um, the DNA is actually packed and organized in a very specific shape inside of the cell. And depending on kind of the state and the function、uh, of the cell, and it turns out it kind of forms this physical scaffold for how the code is read out or how the code functions inside of the cell. So we do all most of our cells have mostly the same baseline code,、um, but different cells do very different things, and they look different. Like our skin cells do diff- very different things from our eyeball cells or our heart cell, for instance. But the code base is the same. So for programmers, it's kind of like compiling different parts of your code. You might have the same baseline library, but you pick and choose different parts. And when the code is being executed, depending on the control flow, different outcome happens. Or you know, you can also think about it as kind of like a pick your adventure kind of book. So depending on which parts you read and in what order, you get kind of a different story. So Sometimes your story could get so jumbled up, you could end up with a cancer cell. Or sometimes, you know, things go well, and if you wanted an eyeball cell, you end up with an eyeball cell. And kind of what one of the mechanisms that dictates, you know, what story gets read out or what program gets executed inside of your cell is turns out is this physical scaffolding of the DNA itself. So depending on how it's folded in, certain parts of your genetic code、um, can be coiled up. Very, very tightly, and can't be accessed by other machinery, proteins that would read it out.、Um, other parts of it gets exposed, and is very accessible for other machinery to attach to it,、uh, attach to the DNA, and get it read out. So that's kind of what we refer to as kind of this idea of 3D genome organization, or、uh, three-dimensional genome organization, or chromatin architecture. It's just how you're basically physically folding things inside of the cell. And again, we're interested in it because. It has ramifications in, in terms of the function of the cell,、um, the state of the cell, and you know, ultimately disease and phenotype. You know what we observe. I think that's a really great explanation, particularly the idea that it's similar to having source code that you're only executing parts of at the same time. I think that this is a, a question that a, a lot of people know about. You know, we we do have all these different, different types of cells. And yet, we constantly talk about this idea of the human genome.、Mm-hmm. Now, which, which is, you know, it, it has its own issues in it that it isn't just the human genome, but it、yeah. is roughly correct to say that、uh, within a, a person that they have roughly the same type of genome and not the same type, the same code、mm-hmm. in each one of the cells. I think that's a really great explanation. So, you've been studying chromatin architecture.、Mm-hmm. One of the terms that I see frequently in when reading these papers. Are these terms loops and tads? Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about what those are? Absolutely. Oh man. So we're kind of jumping into the meat of the thing.、Um, so I'm actually working on when I say I'm working with chromatin architecture, I'm actually working、uh, with the data,、um, the, the 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 readout of how the chromatin is organized. So I'm the kind of the computational side.、Um, there are these brilliant bench scientists or wet lab people. Who、um, about around 2014, I want to say, figured out actually how to one way to measure how the、um, chromatin is organized inside of the cell. So we're going to start there, and we'll eventually get to the loops and tads.、Um, and the way they figure out how to do this is、uh, seems pretty magical to me, but it is science, I suppose. Essentially, what they can do is they can measure how often、uh, certain regions of your DNA. Interact with another region, so how often they come into contact inside of the cell,、um, and then basically what that tells you is 
it's kind of an indirect way of looking at chromatin architecture, right? Instead of taking a picture of this hairball or a, a crochet inside of the cell, you are getting more like a number readout of it. So what you end up with is what um, <clears throat> this technology is called HiC or high throughput chromosomal confirmation capture technology. And what you end up with is is this giant table filled with numbers, which you know we also call a matrix. You end up with this matrix that tells you, let's say you have a thousand regions in your DNA. We're just going to simplify it. A thousand regions in your DNA. And this table tells you how often um, each of these regions interact or come into contact with one another um, inside of the cell. So you have a thousand rows by a thousand columns, and each entry tells you how often the region corresponding to the row interacts with the region corresponding to the column. So if they on average tend to just kind of bump into each other or are close to each other because of a protein kind of held them together, certain regions together, then you know you would have a much higher number uh, in that particular table's entry. So that's all cool and well. So people figured out how to um, measure this experimentally and create this uh, readout to this table or matrix out of you know, what they measured experimentally. And then they started looking at this data set and what they noticed is this kind of what they call block diagonal pattern. Um, you have this, well, the diagonal part hopefully makes sense. It's just along the diagonal of this square matrix, um, you have these block patterns and these squares where uh, the values are much, much higher. And we realized, or scientists realized in general, that there are just uh, groups of regions that tend to interact a lot more with each other or tend to come into contact a lot more with each other, more than expected. Obviously, there's just random collision that would happen by chance inside of the cell. But um, despite that noise, kind of the baseline noise, there's this very clear pattern of uh, self-interacting regions, so groups or clusters of regions that tend to hang out a lot more next to each other. And when they try to figure out what that pattern represented inside of the cell, kind of the dominant theory that's being more and more, you know, proved, it's being proven by different experiments, is that they correspond to physical structures like uh, loops, what you just uh, mentioned, or um, even more, I guess a little bit more abstractly, uh, what they call topologically associating domains. So loops are essentially exactly what they sound like. Um, you just kind of take a string of DNA and create a tiny little loop, and it's kind of held together at, at the end by a protein that likes to just have that particular function. Um, and then all the regions within that loop just tend to interact a lot more with each other. Um, or more broadly or more abstractly, somebody also came up with this a concept called topologically associating domains. I think the consensus is that it's a little bit larger than the loop, or the loop is more transient. It kind of forms and then goes away, but topologically associating domains are supposed to be a little bit more stable structure. But similar idea, it's just this kind of structure in which the, um, the regions of the DNA within that particular domain, they just tend to interact a lot more with each other. And when we look at the high C matrix, they show up as this block square along the diagonal. So that's kind of the main, one of the main features of interest when we talk about chromatin architecture and when we look at HiC data. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that I think that the definition of tads and loops are somewhat in somewhat in flux, but that I agree that they are they are generally these structures that seem to be held together by proteins. Can you talk a little bit more about, you know, what what are the proteins doing when they're holding this together? Is this like an accident that, you know, proteins floating around and causing a loop? Are they what 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 do they hypothesize to be doing? 
you know, that's that's kind of the the question of biology. But at least the proteins that are um, this, this cellular machinery that's involved in um, genome organization. Um, I, I would say there's like there's been a lot of papers that kind of talk about two broad categories of um, genome organization at the local level. So one mechanism is um, uh, the gene expression itself. So you have um, particular proteins, RNA polymerases, that attach itself to the DNA, you know, unhooks the DNA. Well, there are two strands, so it kind of unzips the DNA and starts reading out different parts of your code. So that's the RNA polymerase. It, it builds an RNA, which is the readout of your DNA. And that action itself, uh, people believe that the, the action of that protein of elongating the RNA by reading the DNA, people think that actually uh, is one of the, uh, one of the function mechanisms um, that creates these loops, kind of the more transient loops that's uh, basically dependent on the state of the cell. So that's one mechanism or one type of protein that contributes to these kind of uh, maintenance or creation of genome architecture. And another one that's people believe currently is a little bit more stable than, you know, uh, the actions of the RNA polymerase. We have this class of proteins, um, which includes something called CTCF um, and this cohesin uh, proteins. Essentially, they attach themselves to uh, the DNA. They recognize specific alphabet sequence along the DNA, and then they attach themselves uh, to it. And they kind of just maintain these loop structure. They're kind of like this hair tie <laughs> or, or, yeah, hair ties that kind of ties your DNA at the end of the loop and maintains these loop structure. So that's kind of, there's this interplay between proteins attaching itself by recognizing itself to a specific part of your code or proteins that are just trying to do, go about doing its own job, you know, reading out specific genes in your code or different uh, specific parts of your code. And those are the things that are essentially creating this genome architecture. But um, I was just reading a paper that talked about how the cause and effect isn't quite clear yet. It's not sure, it's not clear yet if one has the clear causal role in this, whether, you know, the, it's the egg and the chicken problem, right? Is it the genome architecture needs to happen first in order for genes to be expressed a certain way, or all these actions of the proteins, ultimately what creates, you know, the genome architecture. And it seems like people are just kind of going with the compromise. It's kind of more like a feedback loop. One reinforces the other. When you say that, you mean that the, that the physical process of tr transcribing a bunch of genes and having all the regulatory mechanisms just forces the genome to kind of fold up in a given way. That's the hypothesis? That's one of the hypotheses. Exactly. Yeah, that's one of the mechanisms in which they believe the the, or the kind of the initial nascent genome architecture forms, um, you know, starting even from like a stem cell state, you know, that's the most nascent, nascent state you can be in. And as genes starts doing, it doing their own specific thing and they get read out, you start forming this very state-specific architecture, and then that somehow kind of gets solidified because of the actions of a bunch of proteins that just get rid out. And because how the genome architecture is being solidified, that reinforces um, some of the functions of your gene or the readouts of the gene. So it's kind of this feedback loop that's happening, um, something, that, something that I think scientists are still trying to tease out how really the genome architecture, chromatin architecture, ultimately reinforces or affects uh, function of the cell. That's a really interesting hypothesis. I don't think that I'd really heard that one before, but it kind of makes sense that 
in order for something to, you know, if gene expression and something was fighting against the existing chromatin architect, you'd have to have really strong forces in place exactly. to hold it together. Yeah, and and yeah, what is the tipping point? You know, that that that's one of the things that people are trying to figure out. If if you if the state of your cell has to change, obviously the physical shape probably has to change eventually. But what what is the thing that kind of kicks it into into shape? That's that's another thing that I think we're still trying to sort out um, in general. You know, computational biologists like me as well as biologists. I've seen some really interesting studies that have shown that you form these, you know, topologically associated domains, which, as you mentioned, are basically just collections of, it's a span of the genome that is close together to, in 3D space, forming like a little knot or something in 3D space. And if you do something like you disrupt the boundary of one of these TADs, that two adjacent TADs now become one big TAD, that they've seen evidence that all of the regulatory elements within both TADs now begin to influence all of the genes within both TADs. Exactly. There's actually a specific type of uh, disease. I believe it's F syndrome. It's like a syndactyly. Maybe the F syndrome is wrong, but there's a specific type of disease that shows up um, in your limbs um, that basically is caused by that particular mechanism. There's, you know, you have these TADs and then you have boundaries. So things that are basically separating different TADs. And if the uh, something happens to the boundary so that two different adjacent TADs merge, um, all of a sudden, an enhancer, like a regulatory element that can turn on a gene, can access genes that it, it basically creates this ectopic, you know, regulatory link that you probably don't want in this case. And that ultimately leads to this very drastic change in, you know, the phenotype, the thing that we end up observing. Um, and then on the other hand, we have a bunch of papers coming out recently that says, Disturbing the TAD boundary doesn't really seem to do much to the overall gene <laughs> expression level. Uh, so there's a lot of this conflicting evidence from, you know, a broad array of phenotypes and across species, too. This is something that we observe in most species, uh, particularly mammals, but also in fruit flies and stuff. So, yeah, it's a very uh, a relatively new field, and people are still trying to figure things out. And I think that's where kind of this collaboration between, you know, wet lab scientists and computational biologists like us, that's where it's really important because without understanding the data, it's hard to kind of generate further hypotheses, I guess, about why something is happening or how something is happening. Yeah, absolutely. I remember that at a certain point, there were two conflicting papers, perhaps the ones that you're mentioning, one where they got rid of all chromatin architecture and it didn't seem to do anything. <laughs> yeah. And the other where they showed a pretty sophisticated mechanism about how cancer can be you know, how cancer can arise where you, by dis basically like a virus enters a cell, disrupts a TAD boundary, mm -hmm. and ends up over-regulating or, you know, over-expressing a gene related to growth. And so both can't be true. Exactly. So, yeah, it's, it's an open question. <laughs> so you have a paper published this year where you've solved all of these problems. Yes, I, I have answered all questions in bi cell biology with <laughs> this one paper. <laughs> but you know, more seriously, you presented this method named Grinch, mm -hmm. which is trying to deal with the data, the, you know, the square matrices of data that you were dealing, you were talking about earlier, in order to improve analyses. Do you want to give an overview of what Grinch is? Absolutely. So Grinch essentially is focusing on one aspect of the the pattern that we notice in the high C matrix. We earlier talked about what a high C matrix is. And that being that block diagonal pattern, these squares, um, or uh, clusters of regions that just are interacting a lot more with each other. And we just talked about why this is of interest because 
we want to know how this ultimately affects function or how function affects these structures, how they kind of have this interplay. So one of the most basic things that we want to do when we get a HiC data set from any kind of biological uh, system or biological state is uh, identify these clusters of genomic regions. Um, ultimately, we want to be able to be able to tell, you know, down the road what's changing and what's conserved as our biological state changes. But for now, uh, the task at hand is which uh, regions of our DNA tend to hang out more with each other. Well, let's just identify that and go from there. We, let's try to answer more questions after we identify this set of clusters. And Grinch is uh, a method that aims to do that. Uh, it also has some side benefits that we can go into because uh, thanks to the specific computational method that we're using. So Grinch stands for, it's a mouthful, but we can break it down one by one. Uh, Grinch stands for graph regularized NMF or non-negative matrix factorization um, and clustering for high C data. So to break it down, high C data we just talked about. It's a readout of the cell and how different regions are interacting with each other. It gives us this matrix filled with numbers that tells us how often regions interact with another. The clustering part, the C and the Grinch, um, should hopefully make sense intuitively. We, ultimately, we're trying to find clusters of genomic regions. That's the clustering part. Um, the kind of the meat of our method, this computational method um, that we apply to YC data is NMF or non-negative matrix factorization. Um, we'll worry about the non-negative part in a second. Matrix factorization, um, it's a very mouthful of a word, but um, it's a simple idea. Just like you can factor a large number into two smaller numbers. So let's say you have the number 12, you can factor it to three and four. Um, you can take a large matrix, so a table filled with numbers, and actually factor it into two smaller matrices, two smaller factor matrices. And once you do that, like what is the point of doing that? Essentially, this matrix factorization, the smaller factor matrices can be treated like a summary or an abstract or kind of a too long didn't read version of your larger matrix. So you're kind of condensing the information um, kind of this hidden patterns or underlying structure in your data into just using, you're condensing that into a smaller matrix so that you can just have a slightly more compact version of your data set that can be more understandable to humans. So that's kind of the point of the general purpose of matrix factorization. The non-negative part, so we just talked about the matrix factorization. The non-negative part is because uh, our high matrices are non-negative because we're essentially counting how often different regions tend to interact with one another. So that's a non-negative part. And um, ultimately, our output factors, we make it so that they're also non-negative so that ultimately it kind of provides this human interpretability. If values are basically zero or higher than that, higher values just mean something of interest to us. So that's the NMF part. Um, so we're, I guess, going backwards. And the graph regularized part, um, essentially, we're just giving it some side information. Regularization usually means you're providing, you're, you're giving it a rule, some kind of regulation, um, or some kind of a constraint to your matrix factorization process. And what kind of rule are we giving it to? We're giving it uh, the, the kind of this constraint in the form of a graph or a network. Um, and our network is very simple. The whole idea is that we earlier talked about how regions that tend to be close to each other just tend to interact a lot more with each other. We can utilize that information. Essentially, we just, in a network, connect regions that are close to each other together and then say, hey, when you create your factor matrix, make sure that it obeys 
this network form, this prior knowledge that we're giving it to you, and we're basically saying regions that tend to be close to each other should ultimately behave similarly in your factor. So that's kind of the high-level overview, and we can delve into it a little bit further if there are parts that are that were a little bit too abstract. But I guess having said all that, <laughs> the short version is Grinch is a computational method that we apply to high C matrices to try to find clusters of um, regions in your DNA that tend to interact a lot more with each other because that has interesting biological implications. That's a succinct summary. Thank you. So in this case, it sounds like the, the cluster of, of regions that you end up with after doing this whole computational process, uh, that's supposed to be it's supposed to be discovering TAD-like exactly. structures. Yes, exactly. It can theoretically do other things. It can theoretically, you know, find um, higher or even higher order organizational units. But the thing that we decide to focus on are these local domains, um, which is TADs. Yeah. Got it. So we'll return to how the method works in a second. But what is the motivation for needing a sophisticated computational method for this? Wouldn't it sounds like from your description before, the TAD should be fairly obvious structures in high C matrices, right? Exactly. So, you know, when you look at it with hand, you're just like, oh, yeah, there's a square. There's another square. <laughs> we should just be able to call that TAD1, TAD2. So there are several difficulties. One is there is actually no gold standard TADs. You, can, you know, you can't say, in fact, in this particular cell, these are the tests. This is um, what you would call, I guess, an unsupervised uh, learning problem and um, machine learning, where you don't actually have an answer. You're trying to just infer some pattern of interest from your data set um, based on just what the what the structure of the data itself looks like. So you don't you don't have an answer to say, hey, these are your the the correct set of tests, um, and you should go find it. If that's the case. You know, there are a lot of good methods that is able to handle that, but unfortunately there isn't. So there's a lot of different uh, tad finding methods out there, in fact, and they all come up with slightly different answers or drastically different answers, depending on what set of tad finding methods you're looking at. So that, that that's one set of uh, challenge. And then part of that challenge or adding to that challenge is the fact that our input high C matrix is noisy. Um, it's not this perfectly... You know, you're not seeing this kind of quilt-like perfect pattern when you look at it. It is a data set generated from experiments. So there's variation in your numbers uh, that's filling up your matrix that's coming from actual underlying differences. Like actually, this is a group of uh, regions that tend to interact a lot more with each other than with another set of regions. That's kind of your true differences that you want to observe. And then on top of that, you have this, you know, technical artifacts or noise or just stuff that gets missed because our experimental procedure is imperfect. That's just, you know, part of science, right? So, yeah, you have this lack of gold standard or your lack of quote unquote true TADs plus the noisiness and a lot of missing entries that, you know, contributes to the noisiness of your input matrix. And because of that, we kind of want all this bells and whistles <laughs> in your computational method to be able to um, basically handle those challenges. And like I said, there are existing TAD finding methods out there that try to address different parts of these challenges. And we try to kind of focus on those two, um, especially the sparsity and the noisiness of our input matrix. I think that's a huge problem when dealing with high C data. To take a step back, high C data and more traditional assays like RNA seq, you know, um, attack seq, chip seq, they're all these sequencing based assays. And so they do some process, but ultimately they involve sequencing a whole bunch of reads and mapping those reads back to the genome. 
when you have these linear assays like a TaxSeq and RNA-seq, that you need a number of reads that's proportional to the size of the genome. And so, you know, that's a large number of reads. It's some number of like tens of millions of reads, but it's become feasible given today's sequencing technology. When you start dealing with chromatin architecture data, you need a number of reads equal to the square of the size of the genome because you're dealing with interactions. Or, you know, if you're just dealing with interactions within chromosomes because you're pretending chromosomes don't interact with each other, then it's the sum of the square of the size of each chromosome, which still is much larger than the other ones. And so even though we have these contact maps, like Erez put out this great contact map, well, not Erez, you know, his students, he uh, he wrote the paper, but his students did all the hard work, like RPIs, uh, with like billions of reads. You're like, wow, you went from tens of millions of reads in a ChIP-seq experiment to billions of reads. But in mm-hmm. fact, as you mentioned, that still is going to produce quite a sparse uh, high C matrix. Absolutely. And so I think that one of the things that I liked about your method, in addition to the fact that it just does factorization, and you know, I've done previous work in factorization, which I assume means that we're best friends. Yes, absolutely. Um, but that I like the fact that you are simultaneously dealing with two problems. The first is trying to smooth this contact matrix to deal with the fact that there is this random sparsity or noise in the matrix. And the second is trying to tackle the underlying problem, that you are dealing with both of these at the same time. Exactly. Yeah, this this problem of getting enough reads for a high C data. I think, you know, you mentioned ChIP-seq and ATAC-seq or an RNA-seq. So single cell technology is, you know, kind of the 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 boom right now, the kind of the the thing that a lot of people are working on. And single cell technology um applied to RNA-seq or a single cell versions of this RNA-seq or, you know, ATAC-seq or basically getting readouts from a single cell for those technologies are improving and are working well. But if you look at single-cell high-C data, you really feel the sparsity problem. Um, so eventually, we want to get to a point where we can actually get an even more detailed version of how all these different cells, the heterogeneity of the different types of interaction that we would get from even a group of cells. But we're not there yet because, like you said, it's it's a reads problem. It's, it's, it's just a massive technical challenge. Um, and there are other technologies outside of HiC. You know, you might have heard of GAM, MicroC, um, Sprite. These are all different um, technologies out there that's trying to deal with different aspects of it and capture maybe certain aspects of your chromatin architecture a little bit better. Um, so yeah, this isn't just not just biologically, but from like a technological standpoint, technical standpoint of the actual um, the experimental procedure. That's something that's still being worked out and. Um, Computational biologists also need to be aware of the fact that the different types of technology will different uh, generate different distribution of data, and your matrix might look different. And one thing that Grinch does do that we've shown is it can, in fact, deal with many different types of matrices generated by different methods as well. So, yeah, it's it's trying to kill a lot of birds <laughs> with with one particular stone, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so. You were talking about all these different technologies, and it seems like it might be worth at this time mentioning that there exists the 4D Nucleome Initiative, which is yes. it's an ENCODE-style project that where ENCODE is focusing predominantly on collecting these 1D assays like ATAC-seq and, and you know, CHIP-seq, etc. That the 4D Nucleome is trying to be a similar style of effort except for handling chromatin architecture. And so they've run hundreds of assays. Uh, or hundreds of experiments would span 
tens of assays and dozens of cell types. And one of the things that I like about these different assays conceptually is that at a high level, it seems like they utilize the fact that you're never going to get enough reads to instead focus on different aspects of chromatin architecture. Mm-hmm. Like there are ones that focus on, say, CTCF-mediated contacts. And so when you say CTCF-mediated contacts, we mean, like you were bringing up before, that there are proteins that will bind to the genome and you know, force things to interact. But this time you're focusing only on the ones that are you know, brought up by CTCF. And so it seems like each of these lenses is kind of a different, sorry, each of these different assays, each of these assays is a different lens to view the architecture that's going on. And it seems like computational methods are well suited to try to integrate all of this into a single unified picture. Absolutely. And so before we get into talk a little bit more about the methodological details of GRINS, is this something that you foresee GRINS being able to do instead of focusing on a single assay to I guess, simultaneously look at several different complementary sources of information? Absolutely. So there are, I guess, two broad ways of attacking that particular problem. So this is something that we kind of played around with initially when we we're developing the algorithm for uh, for Grinch itself. But I kind of talked briefly about the graph regularization. So you pr- we're, we're providing some constraint with some prior knowledge. And right now, that prior knowledge that we're giving to Grinch is the fact that simply um, nearby regions just tend to interact a lot more with each other. But it doesn't have to be limited to that. Any kind of information you can encode in a graph or network format, Grinch can technically handle. Um, one of the uh, one way you could potentially build that graph is using um, something like you know CTCF ChIP-seq or even um, a slightly different uh, a data set that captures a slightly different like lens, like you said, uh, a data set that represents a slightly different lens to the same kind of chromatin architecture, right? So we can essentially you try to use different types of graphs or the input network to provide different, slightly different flavor of prior knowledge to kind of enhance how we identify TADs and enhance the smoothing process itself. Um, so that's one way in which we could try to incorporate this new type of information that's being generated. Uh, another thing that I'm currently working on, actually, and I'm so, so glad you mentioned this, um, this is kind of the next step or our Grinch 2.0, I suppose, um, is this notion of a multitask version of uh, of NMF, essentially. So you 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 will have multiple instead of having one high C matrix as our input, which is what Grinch can handle. You can have multiple matrices, maybe three or four or five, however many. Say maybe a tensor of measurements. <laughs> Perhaps that is actually an, another way of doing it as well. Yeah, just you know, a stack of matrices you know, stacked into a tensor, for uh, for instance, and um, basically factorizing it in, 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 into the same space. So you're kind of summarizing it in the same way, in a way that hopefully you can find what has changed and what has remained the same across these different contexts. And the contexts or the multi, I mentioned multitask. The different tasks can be different biological conditions, maybe cancer cells versus healthy cell, or, you know, cells going along a developmental trajectory or differentiation trajectory, or it can be um, just different aspects of the same snapshot of the cell. So it could be one data set could be from high C, another can be like what you uh, briefly mentioned, like a CTCF mediated chip seek data set, which is basically high C, but more guided by CTCF uh, essentially. 
And this is something that we've already tried. And it's very interesting the type of differences that, that get pulled out, uh, even though the underlying cell line is exactly the same. So yeah, absolutely. And the matrix factorization is particularly amenable to this kind of expansion into a multitask version, or you can essentially treat this multitask version of matrix factorization as a tensor factorization problem, which I know is something that you worked at. Or we can think of it as more like incorporating side information using a more diverse type of regularization uh, mechanisms. So yeah, there are a bunch of ways that we can do it. And that's kind of a, definitely the next step and next thing that I'm currently working on. Cool. Uh, it does seem like there's a lot of work that can be done in that area. Absolutely. So let's dive into the, the Grinz method. Yeah. It said that it seems like there are, there are a few steps. The first is that you take the count matrix from a high C experiment, and then you perform NMF on it. And then subsequently, you perform clustering. Uh, when you're doing the NMF, one of the questions that I had about it is that because the high C matrix is symmetric and square, don't the rows on one of the in the one of the matrices basically don't the factors correspond to each other? Like a row is going to correspond to a column, right? Exactly. Um, they, if you look at the final factors, um, they in fact are basically equivalent, mostly equivalent up to like a scaling factor. So like one could be ten times the other one because of just guess the randomness involved uh, essentially in how the factors are initialized but that is absolutely correct there are specific types there are variants to non-negative factorization that essentially tries to enforce the symmetry so that the factors are exactly the same we but it's computational a little bit more uh, causes a little bit more headache <laughs> it's it involves a little bit more um, algorithmic you know work. So we just decided, you know what, this was good enough. We didn't we didn't need to add that additional kind of complication of trying to force this symmetry on our factors too. But yeah, the output was basically essentially symmetric um, up to a scale or a factor. That's both. Uh, it's interesting and reassuring that even though you didn't enforce this constraint, that it still emerged from the day. I guess it would kind of have to because you are, you know, feeding it in a symmetric matrix. But I spend a lot of my time worried that I've made some sort of mistake in either data processing or training a model, mm -hmm. and having this type of validation seems pretty comforting. Yes, it's a good sanity check. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so then you've performed, you performed NMF, and you end up with some number of factors representing each position. Yeah. Do you have any intuition for how you would select things like the number of factors? You know that is. Oh man, if if I solve that problem too <laughs> in this paper. So it's this, you know, selecting the number of, you know, factors or the hidden features that we would want in, in, in our um, factor matrices essentially kind of is equivalent to this idea of how many clusters do we want? Uh, we said earlier, we don't have gold standard TADs. We don't know how many TADs there are in, in, in a particular um, uh, genome or DNA or chromosome even. So there are a bunch of different ways for you to try to like, every single TAD finding method out there has direct or indirect ways of trying to pick the size or essentially the number of TADs that you want. Um, in our case, it is a pretty direct way. We wanna try to pick, we basically specify the number of clusters essentially, that we want the number of contiguous blocks of uh, regions that we want. How do we pick that? Um, we went with kind of a heuristic. We essentially said, um, TADs or topologically associating domains in previous previously published papers, people are basically saying this is 
on average, a structural unit that is on average about uh, one megabase in scale. So it, it contains about one megabase of genomic regions inside of each cell. So we essentially said, let's calculate, we, let's take the, num uh, the, the length of the chromosome and uh, divide it by one megabase, or how many genomic regions correspond to one megabase, and that gives you a certain number. And we just said, give me, let's say that's, that was 87. It's like, on average, we want 87, not on average, we want 87 clusters that on average is about one megabase in length. So if we tell it to give me 87, it turns out, we also validate this part, we end up with clusters that are about one megabase um, in length. So if we wanted even smaller clusters, so what people call subtads, then we basically double <laughs> or we increase the number of clusters that we want. So essentially we kind of partition the genome into smaller pieces. If we want slightly bigger tads, what pe some people call megatads, then we um, say, give me fewer number of clusters so that on average we get larger clusters. So we essentially use kind of this heuristic based on some biological knowledge that people have about how TADs, the characteristic of the TAD, the size characteristic of the TAD, and that's how we've been setting it. And by default, Grinch, if you download it from GitHub and run it, um, it'll um, automatically set the K, so the number of clusters that you'll get, um, so that the on average, the size is about one megabase long. I know that you talk in the, your work a bit about how there are other the other methods that you compare against for finding TADs, some of them approach this in a hierarchical manner, mm -hmm. where they simultaneously, to you know, keep going back to that word, yeah. uh, identify, as you say, the sub-TADs, the mega-TADs, the, I guess, normal TADs in the mm -hmm. middle. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so w when you were developing Grinch, what were your thoughts? It seems, it seems like the clustering component is somewhat separate from the factorization component. Absolutely. Did you see any benefit or detriment to trying to approach this in a hierarchical manner? Because there are definite, to, maybe to take a step back for a second, that uh, when we talk about subtads or, you know, mega tads, that it's not just that there are tads that are smaller or tads that are larger, it's that there appear to be some tads that are contained within other tads. Exactly. That there'll be blocks of genomic regions that have enrichment for interactions with each other, but within those loci, there'll be a smaller group that's even more enriched within each other. Did you consider or think about um, what the benefits might have been to doing the clustering in a hierarchical manner? That's a great question. Um, and, you know, subtads of, are of particular interest biologic, biologically because there's some theory that subtads are a lot more dynamic than tads. Um, they think tads kind of stay relatively stable across different cell types, different cell lines, but a lot of stuff is kind of more changing underneath. So we did, in fact, try hierarchical factorization initially. So we would start with just splitting the genome into two clusters, non-contiguous, just give me two clusters, and then continuously kind of doing this bipartition down the tree. So we would just keep splitting. We've tried that. And yeah, we also definitely looked at um, just doing our quote-unquote normal NMF so that, you know, we get TADs, and then doing your agglomerative or hierarchical clustering as a post-processing step as well. Ultimately, we just kind of decided to go with the, the, the flat structure across everything for simplicity's sake in, start, in terms of us being able to show um, what kind of... Uh, what, so we basically say we are getting Grinch clusters out and they're, uh, they represent TADs. And we, it was much easier for essentially to say, biologically, our Grinch clusters have the type of characteristics 
um, that TADS scale structures seem to have. And, you know, in terms of CTCF enrichment, all, all, all of these kind of biological validation, uh, biological signal validation that we did. So ultimately, for simplicity and ease of validation, we went with the flat structure. But it is absolutely possible to just throw a different post-processing step on the factors and get the kind of hierarchical nested um, uh, structural units that, you know, some of these other methods look for as well. I say this would be pretty interesting, but of course I say it's pretty interesting without having the, <laughs> without the uh, implication of having to do any of the work, but I wonder <laughs> how much it would, basically you were talking about you'd want to increase the number of factors mm -hmm. as you increase the resolution that you wanted to get. Mm -hmm. uh, basically, if you wanted to find smaller tad, you'd want to increase the number of factors, but I wonder the extent to which more informative clustering methods would be able to pull out this type of hierarchical information from a fixed size number of factors. Give me an example. So are you saying if we, instead of factorization, there are other clustering methods like hierarchical clustering that would be more inherently suitable for the type of task in which, you know, you can get the kind of this hierarchical nested clustering structures? Sorry, I meant... Uh, in both cases, I'm, t I'm still talking about doing non-negative matrix factorization. Mm -hmm. But you were saying that you would want to increase the number of factors as you increase the resolution of the tab that you wanted to find. Is that right? Yes, correct. I guess I was wondering the extent to which that is a consequence of using a, you know, a f kind of flat clustering method. Mm. But if you used a constant number of factors, but you use something like a more informative or hierarchical clustering method on that. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, so as a po uh, just handle this hierarchical clus clustering as a post-processing step once you get the factors out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we did definitely try that. I'm not sure what happened to that experiment. <laughs> <laughs> but that's actually interesting because once we get to the, the multitask version where we are specifically interested in looking for changes and at least currently the, the understanding or the consen general consensus is that these smaller, more refined scaled structures are the things of interest that is changing across different contexts. Having a hierarchical nested uh, cluster output and also having a way to compare that across tasks would definitely be of interest. It might actually give more um, meaningful biological insight than just looking at it at a single scale, especially just at TADS, um, if sub-TADS are what people are saying are dynamic. So that's something that I need to keep in mind um, for what I'm currently working on. So thank you for that idea. Well, I'd be happy to be first author on any future work that you put out on this. <laughs> Sounds good. I'll talk to Sushmita about that. <laughs> so you were talking about how uh, Grint uh, solves two problems at a time. Mm -hmm. And we've talked a lot now about the clustering challenge. Yeah. You're saying that the second is the smoothing challenge. Mm -hmm. Something that was unclear to me was whether or not you are actually re-imputing these high C contact matrices in order to make them look smoother. Interesting. So the smoothing part is essentially, it's an, you can think of it as another post-processing step. So we do the factorization, we get the factors out, and we apply a, a type of a, a clustering method to get, you know, TAD scale clusters. So that's one branch. Another branch that we can go down with those factors is, um, remember how uh, earlier I said, you know, you can factor a number into two smaller numbers. And the whole point of factoring is you multiply them back and you get the original number back. Same idea with matrix factorization. You get the factors, you can multiply them back with some linear algebra magic, and you get 
you try to, the whole point of matrix factorization is so that when you multiply the factors back, that the factor, the multiplied matrix is as close as possible to the original matrix. So that process, people also refer to as matrix completion. You're, you're recompleting uh, your matrix based on the two factors that you get. So it's essentially just a simple matrix multiplication. And if you look at the multiplied matrix, the completed matrix, what it essentially does is we uh, also talked earlier a little bit about two different types of variation. One is variation that's coming from actual differences in the underlying process. And another type of variation is noise generated by the technical artifacts or the experimental process or whatnot. What matrix completion does is it reduces the noise, um, the variation coming from noise. And th the reason it's called smoothing is because it tries to basically even out that noise and tries to enhance uh, the, the actual very quote unquote actual variation or the differences that is coming from the underlying process itself. So the actual TAD separation among the different regions. So that's kind of what the smoothing part is. Algorithmically, it's simply multiplying the two factors back. Um, and the reason it works is because it's dialing down on the noise and increase the quote unquote true variation or the variation that we're, we're interested in. So that's the smoothing part. Did that make sense or did that answer your question? Yeah, that makes sense. I suppose the question that I was going to be asking is that if, if you factorize, you, you've been talking about how this matrix has this very strong diagonal effect, which you described as being that if two contacts are, you know, if you view the genome as like a string, that no matter how you throw it up, whatever 3D structure it forms, that the positions right next to each other on the string are going to be close to each other in the 3D structure. Mm -hmm. And so all high C and really all chromatin architecture data sets are kind of dominated by this effect. Yeah. And so something that I was wondering is if you factorize this matrix, how well is it able to reconstruct an effect like that? Because that basically that seems like it's a it it's not really an effect that could be encoded in uh, two sets of factors. Interesting. So maybe I'm misunderstanding what it was that uh, you did when you talked about smoothing. That's okay. So that means I need to explain it in a different way. Let me think about this. So um, a lot of what, you know, existing imputation methods or uh, methods that tries to fill in missing values in a high C matrix or, you know, try to reduce the noise, what they essentially oftentimes do is um, using kind of the neighboring regions and you kind of using an average of it or some kind of a voting system to fill in a particular um, uh, the value that you're missing of, of interest, right? So that's kind of... A lot of the methods that we uh, specifically benchmark against does something like that. Um, our method, I guess, essentially, you are reconstructing the whole matrix again. So you you take the two factors. I'm like making hand gestures as if people can see me. But you take the two factors, and if you multiply them back, so one factor, let's say, is a thousand rows by five columns because we're reducing the dimension of our matrix, and then the other one is also the same with linear algebra, you multiply them back, you essentially end up with a quote unquote brand new 1000 by 1000 matrix. So we are kind of regenerating it from the ground up um, instead of just, you know, picking and choosing different entries in our matrix and then filling that in. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like in your example that when you were saying that you would take two numbers and you, you take a number and you factorize it, you multiply it back together. Here you've learned 
two smaller matrices. And by taking the outer product of the two, you can reconstruct the entire matrix. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, we're not picking and choosing specific missing values. We're not picking and choosing, or we're not going entry by entry and, you know, trying to like smooth it out using its name. We're just essentially letting the matrix multiplication or the matrix completion part do its magic and give us a, a, a an entirely smooth matrix that, you know, you can use potentially downstream for other um, analyses, like trying to find significant interactions or um, differential interactions if you're trying to compare two different contexts. Yeah. I guess what I was saying was that I, I was I was surprised that you would be able to reconstruct a diagonal effect on a matrix doing a factorization, but I suppose it's this chain type of constraint ah, that you put in. Ah, I see what you're saying. Ah, finally. Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. Um, it is possible because if you um, look at the factors, uh, it, let's say you, I just like throw it in Python and say, or MATLAB and say, give me a heat map of this. It's um, it's I guess what they call orthogonal. So each region usually only has is is lit up or has values in only one of the the latent features or one of the columns in our fa factor matrix. So the math works out that if you know your factors are fairly orthogonal and you're just multiplying the back, it basically essentially creates that block diagonal structure, kind of basically like a quilt with a bunch of squares going down the diagonal. So yeah, that's um, it is surprising, but I think it's something that honestly, it made more intuitive sense to me when I actually visualize the data and you're just like, oh, okay. So it's kind of without us even saying, give me orthogonal or very distinct, you know, columns, it's already doing that. And based on it, it's based, able to recreate this uh, block diagonal structure where things are fairly isolated unless they're within their own tatter or they're within their own cluster. Yeah. Got it. So you're saying that basically you're able to reconstruct this like with... Are these two loci within the same TAD or like basically generalized to being, or what is the distance between these two based on the chain constraint that you put in, that you're saying that you want adjacent genomic positions to be similar to each other in the latent space. And so when reconstructing, you can roughly reconstruct the distance between the two based on how similar the latent space is. Exactly. There you go. Okay. <laughs> Thank okay. you. <laughs> that all makes sense. Okay. That's really cool. I know that there have been some... Um, I when I started grad school, one of my first projects was trying to predict high C contact maps uh, directly from nucleotide sequence and DNAs. And one of the challenges that we encountered was that this diagonal effect was extremely strong. And so not only was it extremely strong in the sense that the model basically only learned that initially, but the second thing is that when evaluating the model, it was difficult to disambiguate the effects that were related to distance from actual real biology. And it seems like here focusing on things like TADs, these 1D signals that you do, that you do is a good way around that. Yeah, so one of the, on the other big projects um, that our lab uh, is working on is, is, like you said, predicting the high C counts, uh, which is of interest because like you said, we need huge amounts of reads in order to get a decent high C data matrix out. So if we could do it computationally in new contexts where we have you know, a bunch of side information already gathered, it would be much cheaper to do it computationally than to have, a, have to do a whole high C experiment. So that's kind of the main interest in doing um, high C imputation or high C count prediction, right? And yeah, that's exactly what we find. The, the kind of the effect of the distance is so dominant um, 
the paper that our lab recently published is around a method called HiC-REG that uses a regression tree to predict um, HiC counts. And when we're evaluating the model, we essentially have to um, evaluate a distance stratified manner. So at for all the genomic regions that is linearly this distance apart, how good is the model? And it is very, very, very hard to um, create a model that can do well across all distances, that, that's generalizable across all distances, definitely, and kind of recapitulate these kind of, you know, local structures uh, that you see in, in high C data sets. So that is absolutely another type of uh, challenge that is out there that I am theoretically supposed to be able to do as part of my uh, PhD. <laughs> that was that was in my prelim <laughs> exam, but we'll get around to that. But yeah, the, the the distance effect is very very strong, and the but the matrix factorization is able to essentially ignore it when needed um, to be able to say we're just going to consider this kind of distance distance effect as almost noise and just kind of focus on this block structure that we see across the diagonal and recapitulate that when we do the smoothing part. So yeah, that's also something. Very, very interesting. And there's something called inductive non-negative matrix factorization. So you kind of provide features or side information. We talked about side information being provided in the graph form, but it doesn't have to be that. So it's kind of inducing um, what the matrix should be filled into uh, using the side information that's given in the form of another set of matrices. So that was another thing that we considered or looked into um, when we were kind of thinking about this uh, high C count or high C matrix completion problem as well. But yeah, that's something that I also need to revisit eventually. So this, you know, bunch of methods around uh, just dealing with things at a matrix level, I think is pretty well suited for this type of data and this, uh, this type of problem. And there's just so many different ways that we can tackle it. And eventually, maybe I'll try all of them out. But yeah, that can just be the rest of your PhD trying all the combinations. Exactly, and probably rest of my life, really. Yeah. I mean, if you become a professor, then <laughs> we'll see about that. But thank you. Yeah. So to to zoom out a little bit, we've been getting into the details of like high C matrices and chromatin architecture and that type of data. I was interested in your thoughts on some of the newer technologies that have been coming out, that there are these imaging technologies where basically what they're doing you know, at a, at a high level is that they're kind of taking a picture of what's going on in the cell. And it's kind of a grainy picture right now. It doesn't have nearly the resolution that HiC can have, even though HiC isn't you know, super high resolution. I was wondering what your thoughts are on, on some of the imaging technologies that have been coming out. Oh, man, that's, I mean... <sighs> One of the um, the the people involved in the 4D nucleum, um, he gave a talk recently uh, at uh, Wisconsin, and he kind of defined that as one of the key challenges going forward: um, how to integrate the information, the unique type of perspective or the lens being provided by uh, this imaging technology, and how to incorporate that with kind of the more numerical molecular readout and kind of the resolution that's being provided by uh, HiC and its cousins and its and its families. Um, so one of the recent methods like that, that specifically focuses on imaging, I think it came out of science, they actually do both. So from the technology standpoint, one one thing that I think people will uh, try to do based on just this one paper I saw is you do still take a picture, um, kind of like an x-ray of your cell, 
But on top of that, they essentially also generated a high C-like matrix um, so that people can actually manipulate it and, and kind of use the same type of tools that people are used to using with high C. Um, but essentially, you kind of using the imaging as a guide or almost like a sanity check or a validation method just to be able to say, hey, this looks legit. <laughs> you know, here's a TAD. That's where it actually is in the nucleus. That's kind of cool. Um, so that's kind of one way in which I think people will try to handle it on the technology side. Not only give you an actually pretty picture, but also give you a readout in which people can manipulate and use a lot, you know, a lot of these unsupervised, you know, um, computational methods on it. Another thing is um, from the machine learning side purely, um, I think there's could be two broad classes of algorithms that could be applied to specifically imaging. like. One being just literally algorithms that were specifically de developed to handle pictures. Um, there's a lot of them out there that deals with kind of the, the spatial relatedness of different pictures. Because a lot of times, a lot of machine learning algorithms just assume all of your data points are kind of independent from one, one another, um, which you can't make that assumption or that gives you a huge disadvantage if you uh, assume something like that in temporal data when things are related, you know, if they're close in time or in something like any spatial data, including images. Pixels next to each other tend to be related or do something similar to each other. So there are a lot of uh, specifically machine learning algorithms um, in the imaging domain that accounts for that. And I think that's another uh, set of algorithms that we could definitely apply to once you get even higher resolution images uh, from these new technologies. And so that was one set. Oh, and then another set of kind of algorithms that I think would be useful is kind of going back to the networky or the graph nature of um, this, this 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 type of data. Essentially, it is a network of different genomic regions, right? It's how often they interact, how often they come into contact. So different nodes are your different genomic regions, and you can create an edge between them based on how often they interact with each other. So you can treat it like a network and graph. And there's also a lot of, especially in the unsupervised um, domain, a lot of network-based algorithms that specifically is about traversing the network, handling large networks, um, you know, computationally more effective because a lot of these TAD finding methods currently are computationally pretty intense. <laughs> they, they take a lot of memory up, they take a lot of CPU time up, but in the network domain, especially because of the advance of social media, social network mining. Um, there's a lot of computational gain, I think, on that side. So being able to apply some of that, I think, will be of interest if we can somehow convert that imaging data into a more network-friendly input format. So I think, yeah, uh, it's kind of the cutting edge area in this, this chromatin architecture domain. And I think kind of the advances will come in both on the experimental technology side and um, on the algorithmic side, I think we'll kind of start seeing even more diverse type of machine learning mechanisms, uh, machine learning algorithms being thrown at the problem. But I do think there are already good enough existing um, methods out there that we could apply um, as soon as the imaging uh, outputs get you know good enough. That is of interest to yeah, of biologists especially. Yeah, I'm really excited about this. That I, I'm a bit skeptical about the chromatin architecture data. I think that. It definitely is realistic at high resolutions, but as these types of data get better, and inevitably they're going to get better, I think that they can. It'll be really interesting to find ways of integrating this type of information because most of the work that I do right now involves these like one D tracks, like you know RNA seq and attack seq, 
and finding ways of trying to build a machine, but building machine learning model incorporates more and more of these 1D tracks is not super complicated. But trying to find ways of incorporating pairwise information from chromatin architecture, imaging data sets, uh, especially when that gets to be high resolution and extremely accurate, I think is going to be incredibly helpful in deciphering how these two things really interplay with each other. Because you do this a little bit in your paper and we didn't have a chance to talk about it, but I think that a lot of people will they'll validate the chromatin architecture data by looking at high level aggregations of these 1D tracks. But I think that it would be really interesting to be able to say like these this contact between this region and this other region is mediated by these specific sequence features. Exactly. Yeah, like exactly, you're right. It's it's fine to say, sure, we got the clusters out. And the next step is now you have the what, like what's happening. You want to understand the how. You want to be able to connect it back to the the underlying mechanism because that's the thing that we're still trying to figure out what's happening first and what's mediating what. Um, and yeah, and being able to, to, to integrate that kind of information. And like you said, once we go to ultra high resolution, handling this kind of pairwise information, um, I, I've been trying to read a lot about graph-based neural networks, you know, autoencoders, something like unsupervised methods and autoencoders or graph-based CNN, um, convolutional neural networks, things like that. It's There's some work done on that frontier because of social networks, but I think there's so much more that could be done, um, especially with using this kind of more biological data. So maybe that's something that the bioinformatics community can actually push forward, kind of this taking these cutting edge machine learning algorithms, especially in the deep learning space, but um, making it more robust when you have to give it kind of this graph-based, network-based, pairwise kind of this this flavor. So yeah, that's absolutely something that I'm also excited about, um, not just from the technology standpoint, but from the algorithmic side, how much can we push all the existing methods? And when we realize we can't do much with it or the existing methods aren't good enough, um, what can we contribute not just the, to the biological side, but from to the machine learning community and the algorithmic algorithmic community as well. Yeah. Yeah, it'll be. I think that'll be an exciting few years. That we're kind of. I think that the, like I just said, that everything happening in the chromatin architecture space is super exciting. You know, ML of course has been exploding for the last decade. Single cell technologies and proteomics. It just seems like it's a really exciting time to be a computational scientist in this field. <laughs> we have so much data, and you know. Not enough time, I guess. <laughs> not enough space, not enough memory. <laughs> the real problem is that experimentalists keep coming up with more and more sensitive assays. So by the time we're done analyzing one type of data, it's, you know, it's worthless. Yeah, and yeah, we, and then we have to figure out a way to, you know, make a memory sufficient, like efficient to fit the whole thing. Yeah, that's that's another big challenge. Um, anytime you kind of bring this, this matrices in, and you've worked with tensors before, the computational, the the actual computational complexity and the resource side is also quite a challenge. Um, something that I'm trying to figure out how I can do effectively, kind of just creating an accurate algorithm that I know what's going on underneath the hood, but also try to incorporate multi-threading or just make it more efficient. Um, at the end of the day, it might not be, you know, people who develop that. It's mostly not going to be people who develop the algorithms who end up running uh, methods like Grinch. It might be just analysts or, you know, even graduate students who might do, be doing wet, wet lab work who have to run this to kind of post-process or analyze their data set. 
to try to make it easier for them <laughs> so that they don't actually need an entire cluster of uh, machines to be able to run some of these methods. That's that's also another thing that I think um, I'm sure is always in the back of your head, something I think about a lot. Um, it's kind of always a trade-off. Do I make something more memory efficient? Do I make it run faster? That kind of thing. Um, that's that's also something that will uh, that will be of challenge, and will be fun to address as we get more and more higher resolution data that it basically ends up being larger and larger files. That <laughs> that's how they manifest as right. So, yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely something that uh, you have to think about now. That as as you get higher quality data, it's not just that the data is higher quality. It usually means that there's more of it, mm -hmm. and so um, that does become more challenging. But that's just why you know I tell my advisors that they need to get me you know hundreds of gigabytes of RAM, <laughs> dozens of GPUs. Hey, if Facebook can have tens of thousands of GPUs, then you know, I should be able to as well. Yes, we are pushing the frontiers of biology. We should absolutely have access to all the GPUs we want. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, thank you for taking the time to join us today. Do you have any closing comments? I don't know. I just, I'm, I, I really had fun. Uh, thank you for inviting me. It's kind of, like we said uh, at the very beginning, it's been kind of the cabin fever season, but it's just nice to talk about science for like hour and a half straight uh, with somebody. And, uh, um, and, you know, we talked also briefly right before we started how um, I attended your talk at uh, ISMB Intelligent Systems for Molecular Biology, that conference in 2018. That was actually the first conference that I went to as a graduate student. And I was kind of starstruck. And I remember your talk on avocado. So that was very, very cool. And it's just kind of cool that to have this kind of connection that just kind of keeps going. Um, as a graduate student, because things can get lonely, especially right now. So thank you for having this kind of podcast. I think it's nice to hear human voices, first of all. And thanks for inviting me. It was very lovely. Mm -hmm.